Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I catch up with Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. The topic, UDI, Unique Device Identification. You know, what's the big idea? Is there something new here? I mean... Technically speaking, no, not really. I mean, FDA did finalize a guidance on this. You know, this is not a how to do UDI per se, but Mike and I do talk about some of the nuances, but also some of the benefits of UDI and, and some of the potential that UDI can bring to your products and technologies in the medical device world. So I hope you enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Topic today should be, well, I think it's kind of interesting and we'll get into the details, but to kind of set the stage a little bit, I remember a few years ago when the UDI regulation came out in the United States, unique device identification, I was doing some work for a few companies and, you know, we were just trying to scramble to try to figure out what this is, what we needed to do, what the process was, you know, we reviewed guidance documents and the thing, the information that was available at that time. And it was confusing, but anyway, you know, fast forward quite a few years later, is it any clearer. Well, joining me is Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences. So Mike, welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. And yeah, this is an interesting topic, John, but let's be flat out honest here. This is a flat out boring topic, or at least it can be. And like many topics regulatory, it can be as about as exciting as watching paint dry, but that's not (laughs) my intent. So I'm going to try as much as I can with your help, John, to lighten things up a little bit here. All right. So as we usually do, probably a good place to start is what is it? What is UDI? question that UDI, the acronym, the unique device identifier, I sometimes refer to it as a universal device identifier. It's an important topic, but as we just said, it can be a boring topic. The impetus for today's conversation, John, was the guidance that FDA just finalized last month on this particular topic. But I'll be honest with you, this is a topic that I've thought about maybe talking about in one of our podcasts for many years. Right. And I've pushed it off and pushed it off largely because, you know, how can we take a topic like this and make it interesting? There I say it even exciting or maybe even fun. And then the other reason why I thought this would be a good topic for us to discuss is because, yeah, it is a pretty boring or can be a pretty boring topic, but it's a very important topic. And it's amazing to me how many companies, including some of my customers, are getting in trouble with FDA, whether it comes to regulatory submissions that are being rejected or manufacturing inspections that they're getting 483 observations on because of some aspect of UDIs. And I think not to jump the gun here, John, but But I think the root cause of a lot of this is something that you and I have talked about many times, and that is many people are focusing on following the regulation without really understanding its intent. And so one of the things I'm hoping to drill into a little bit with your help, John, is the intent of all of this UDI regulation, including the guidance that FDA just finalized. And by the way, John, just one other quick historical note, and then I'd love to hear your thoughts as we get going here. The guidance, as I just said, was finalized last month, whatever the word final means in the context of guidance, there is no such thing as final. The draft guidance came out five years ago on UDIs, and the original full published in the CFR, the Code of Federal Regulations, actually goes back 
eight years, John. Yeah. So it's taking us, quite frankly, a heck of a long time to do something that Walmart was doing more than 20 years ago. <laughs> I know. So why the heck is it taking us so long? Well, we'll get to that into that, John. But anyway, your turn. Yeah. And I guess we don't often do this, but probably good to give uh, listeners a disclaimer. The intent of this conversation that Mike and I are having about UDI is not intended to be a how-to work instruction type of conversation. We're more talking about what it is, why it's important, you know, maybe, you know, some tips and pointers and some advice, but as far as the nuts and bolts, you know, the dirty details of how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, that's not necessarily the intent of this conversation. And I may add justification for that. I'm sorry for interrupting is twofold. First of all, at least in my experience, John, the problems that companies are running into are not because of the detail of implementing it. In one case, one company came to me because their 510k submission was rejected because they didn't have the UDIs as part of their labeling in their 510k. And in another case, another of my members just got dinged on a manufacturing inspection because they weren't following, they didn't even know they had to put on UDIs on their particular device. So we're talking about some fundamental problems here, John, that go above and beyond just the details of, you know, what information do you put in that code? Yeah. Well, so I want to unpack both two things that you just said. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how does one not realize eight years after this was put into the CFR that UDI information needs to be part of the submission. And how does one not realize that this is important for manufacturing? But before we do so, you said something a moment ago that, you know, Walmart has been doing this for decades. So maybe let's start there. What is a UDI? What is a unique device identifier? I mean, is it a yeah. barcode? Is it a catalog number? Is it a SKU? What is it? I guess just generically. Yeah, great question, John. And I looked into this a little bit myself. There's actually a number of different formats or technologies or options that companies have, not just with medical devices, but with products across the board. So what is talked about in the guidance that we just referred to is automatic identification and data capture or an AIDC system. But FDA also distinct from the universal product code or the UPC system. You're probably familiar with UPCs when you go to the grocery store, John. It's the little barcode on yeah. a variety yeah. of different products. I know you're going to hold something up. I've got some props to share with our audience that we'll get to, but there you go. But also QR codes, quick response codes that we all are now scanning when you go to, for example, a restaurant and they don't want to give menus of COVID. So you scan this and it pulls it up on your phone. That's another form of identification. And a third form of identification is RFID chips. For example, you probably have when you go through the electronic toll booth and you have a transponder in yeah. your car. That's a passive way of providing ID. In other words, there's no battery required. It's kind of like a tuning fork. So you hit it with a particular frequency of energy, wavelength of energy, and it responds. It resonates exactly like an electronic tuning fork. Right. And I think that's important when we talk about, for example, implantable devices that are going to go inside your body because you can't, you know, think about this, John, if you have a coronary stent or a breast implant or a hip implant that's inside your body and you need to know what it is, what lot number and so on, you're probably not going to cut yourself open and look to see what the barcode says. So there's a lot of different ways this can be done, not just with the traditional barcode, although that's probably the most common connotation. Does that make sense, John? Yeah, it does. And, you know, let me recall some memories from when I was working on some UDI projects many years ago. There are a couple of components to it, but the gist of a UDI is to identify the specific product and manufacturer 
manufacturer and you know potentially even the batch or lot or serial number of that product, if I remember correctly, right? That's correct. And putting it into regulatory terms or better for you, John, as the quality guru in the room, putting it in quality terms, this should not be a foreign concept to anybody. No. This is a concept of traceability. That's all a UDI is, is traceability. And I'm going to use a few props of my own, if you don't mind, John. Yeah, sure. You may remember, are on video, so why not? You yeah. may remember your infamous ketchup <laughs> and mustard <laughs> podcast, where you use ketchup and mustard extremely effectively to illustrate the concept of substantial equivalence in the 510K. And to your credit, John, I don't know, I won't embarrass either one of us by looking up actually recorded that podcast. It was a long time ago, it's, it's but I still yeah. to this day use that podcast in many of my regulatory training. So <laughs> hats off to you. Well, I'm going to follow in your footsteps, if you don't mind. Yeah, I'm going to use some substantially equivalent metaphor. Right. Here we have a bottle of Coke and a can of Coke. So a UDI will be able to allow us to distinguish between this bottle versus this can, but that's not good enough. That's where our technology is right now, John, that's not good enough. What I want to be able to do is I want to be able to distinguish this can of Diet Coke from this can of Diet yeah, Coke. Right. In other words, these are exactly the same cans or are they? Well, they're really not. And so this is the level of traceability that ultimately we want to get to. I don't want to be able to distinguish or identify an entire batch or lot or whatever you want to call it, which is what these UPC codes do right now. Yeah. I want to be able to distinguish this can from this can. I want to be able to distinguish this medical device from that medical device. And by the way, John, it's exactly the same with drugs, with pills. Yeah, right. I want to be able to distinguish one pill inside of a bottle from another pill in the same bottle. That to me is ability that we ultimately need in this industry for a variety of reasons, as I suspect we'll just get into. And by the way, John, I just dripped water condensation from well, all over At least my it was water and that, and that soda. Yeah. That's, so, that's true. I mean, not to insult certainly you or me or the listening audience, but you know, maybe some of these things are obvious, but why would I need to know down to the pill or down to the individual unit level? Why would I need that sort of traceability to know that? Yeah, great question. Well, it's all about traceability. Why is traceability important? Well, one of the reasons why it's important is if there's a problem. If we, I just coincidentally taught a two-day course on post-market surveillance and complaint handling. If you have a complaint that's sent to your company about one of your medical devices, one of the things you're supposed to do, it's amazing, John, how often this doesn't happen, but one of the things you're supposed to do is investigate that complaint and try to determine what in the engineering vernacular we would call the root cause. And in other words, is it a design issue, a manufacturing issue, a user issue, a material issue, and so on? And depending on the type of problem, then you want to be able to take corrective actions in the form of maybe issuing a dear doctor letter, possibly even a recall. And you want to know what devices were affected. Well, what you could do, I suppose, is you could recall all the devices that were made you know, of this type. But if the problem, let's say, for example, John, it's a manufacturing problem and we can narrow it down to one particular batch, one particular lot, for example, why do we need to recall everything if it only affects one small slice of the pie? 
Yeah. So one example of why these things are important is problems, but there are other examples as well. Can you think of other situations where traceability would be important? Well, I mean, I was going to share an experience that I had years ago, way before UDI. I was working for a catheter company and the way we identify catheters, there was a part number that told, you know, the French size and the number of lumens and length and, you know, a lot of different attributes about that. That was an internally defined set of nomenclature that we use. But whenever we package them and terminally sterilize them, then they would get a lot number assigned. But every each of those catheters was individually manufactured as part of common work order or traveler or whatever the case may be. So they were kind of all bundled together, but they were all individual pieces, parts, components, materials that were constructed, that were all you know manipulated, manufactured and what have you. And they got a common lot designation post-sterilization so that we could tie it for lots of reasons, but primarily you know, one of the reasons was traceability to that particular sterilization run, which is, you know, okay, great. You know, we had pretty good traceability and, you know, one could argue it was a class two device certainly we're at and maybe even exceeded the level of expectation from a traceability perspective, except when there was a problem. You know, I remember one scenario, there was an issue in the field with a particular catheter. And I think a tip separated and, you know, we went through the whole complaint investigation and, you know, tried to identify as much information about that as we possibly could. And it was identified as probably a bigger issue well, a big enough issue that we wanted to contain it from becoming yet even a bigger issue still. But we couldn't isolate or narrow it down to the specific lot, you know, and that lot might have comprised of hundreds, maybe even thousands of individual units. We couldn't even narrow it down to a specific date. So we had, you know, broaden our scope of product that was potentially impact to tens of thousands of units, you know, and I don't think we ended up going down the recall path with that particular scenario, but had we had to have gone down that recall call path, you know, that would have cost easily hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to pull all that product and that inventory back in so that we can do a more thorough investigation to truly identify it. So I know that wasn't exactly the answer to your question, but well, I love linking traceability in your case to the sterilization process. That's a terrific example. Let me throw out a couple of other examples that don't necessarily have to deal with problems or complaints or recalls, because to be honest with you, John, as we talked about, the medical device industry has been struggling trying to implement this for a long time. Well, I think that the applications that we're using today in terms of UDIs are laughable could be doing. And again, Walmart has been doing this for a long time. How about inventory control? Yeah. So when somebody, so when you go to Walmart and you buy a product and you stay scan it at the cash register, not only does it ring up the price, but it automatically takes one of those things out of the inventory and further, it automatically puts in an order to replace it, to order more. Yeah. Hospitals and doctor's offices can be doing exactly the same thing. And you mentioned, I think the word compatibility, John, it's one of my favorite regulatory topics because it's so broad, but how about when you scan a device with your code, whatever it is, a barcode, a UPC code, a AIDC code, I don't care what it is. How about it comes up with a list of compatible devices that yeah. it can be used with, right? So you mentioned a catheter, for example. So what guide wires can we put? Yeah, that's a great, it's a, yeah. It's a balloon catheter. You know, what stents can we deploy using it and, and so on and so on. So this is not rocket science, John. You know, these are all things that are very, very easy to implement, but I just don't see it happening. 
As I say, that that last point is really intriguing to me because, you know, in the catheter world, you know, one company may have the preferred catheter, but a different manufacturer may have preferred guide wire and another one yet still may have a different needle. Is anyone going to that level of identifying that sort of level of compatibility with different devices that you're aware of? Well, we do have to, as part of the regulatory process, John, we do have to, in the traditional labeling, identify what's compatible. At least that's not to go off on a tangent here, but that's the traditional approach as opposed to defining what I call a technological envelope where instead of things specific devices that are devices compatible with, we define a technological envelope, a list of technological parameters such that as long as your device is diameter between X and Y and length between A and B and durometer of, you know, and so on and so on, it will be compatible. But I haven't seen it happen very much where people are incorporating that into the UDI or similar kind of labeling like that. It certainly could be. And I think it would make a lot of sense. And an interesting wrinkle, John, if we wanted to kick the regulatory portion of our discussion up many, many notches, when we indicate in the high-level labeling what devices are compatible with, that would be considered on-label. But what if our device is compatible with other things that are not on our high-level labeling? And what if we include, you know, information? When you scan our UDI, you know, that would be then indicating for an off-label use. Mm. I'll leave that as a rhetorical (laughs) one, John, but that presents some dilemmas, certainly when it comes to the FDA. Yeah. I mean, I understand a lot of the business advantages of doing so. And I get from a regulatory body perspective, why this information is useful, but I mean, to your knowledge is is FDA, I mean, how are they leveraging or tracking or managing UDI information? Do you have any insights there? Well, regrettably, John, and I, you know, I have to be honest here. I blame both industry as well as FDA for not having any creativity or imagination in how these technologies can be used. Maybe an alternative way to address the question that you just asked is what are the challenges that we face in implementing UDI? Because I went through the guidance, you know, like any good regulatory professional, but unlike a lot of the other regulatory folks, I don't just read what's in the guidance. What speaks louder to me is what is not in the guidance. And why is it not in the guide? So in no particular order, John, here's a list of a half a dozen or so different challenges that I thought around UDIs. Some of them are addressed a little bit. Many of them are not addressed at all. So for example, what if you have, and these are all problems that I've run into in my own regulatory consulting practice. What if you have a teeny tiny device, a device that's physically so small that it would be difficult, maybe even impossible to put a label, barcode or otherwise on it? What about if you have a piece of software, as we've talked about before, John, an SAMD, a software as a medical device, hardware, and as a result, there is no package per se. Well, the labeling requirements are the same. This is one thing that amazes me. People think that software is so different compared to all other medical devices. Well, in reality, it's really not that different. If you understand the principles, the philosophies of the regulation, no, there is no sticky label that goes onto your software because there's no box that you put it in usually. But, and this is something that the about a tiny bit, you can put the UDI on a, like a menu command, you know, so yeah. it pops up on the screen. So you're essentially creating a virtual label. So there is traceability that way. Well, and what let about- me chime in on that one too. I mean, oh. that, you know, software routinely, I mean, there's any software that's developed has versioning or any modern Correct. software should have versioning. So this isn't a foreign concept from a software perspective. It's just about a matter of making it available. 
Correct. Yeah. Absolutely correct. And here's an interesting question. Do we need to remember a moment ago, I said, ultimately, I want to be able to distinguish between two of the same cocans. I want to be able to distinguish this one from this one, because it could be there's a problem with this one, but not that one, right? Yeah. Well, what about when it comes to software? If I have two copies of allegedly the same software, to be able to distinguish between them. I remember one time, and this is a true story, John, somebody was submitting a PMA to the FDA and they were looking at the submission requirements before like electronic submissions. Right. And it said you had to submit multiple copies. I think it was either like <laughs> six copies, I think. And right. they said, well, do I have to submit six PDF files, six P <laughs> uh, the same PDF files? I said, you're smoking something, you know, yeah. but it begs the question, you know, in software, you know, do we need to have that level of differentiation? So, but that's a solvable problem. If you understand the principles of the regulation, right. not the literal interpretation. How about if you have, and one of my customers asked me this just last week, how about if you have a single use device, a disposable device that originally was packaged by itself and now take it like a thousand of them and put them into one big box? Do they have to label each and every one of those thousand of them in the big box or in the package? The guidance doesn't go that far. And the guidance can't possibly specify every scenario, every contingency that every device and everybody company is going to run into. I can't tell you, John, maybe it's just me. How many of my customers complain because they say the guidance is not specific enough? Well, <laughs> duh, it's not supposed to be specific. Go ahead. Keep going. You're rolling. I was trying to get <laughs> off there. It's supposed to be a starting point. It's supposed yeah. to be guidance. You know, this is what we think to think about. You're supposed to take this kind of like a quality management system. You're supposed to take this and apply apply it to your own situation. I don't mean to, you know, you said I was going, <laughs> maybe, I don't know if you meant that in a good way. No, it was a good way. I'm not sure. <laughs> but let's go back to the example that you just mentioned where, you know, they sold the product in single units and now they've decided to box a bunch of them, you know, a hundred or whatever it was. This is where you get to think for yourself, right? This is a business decision. I mean, is it worth the cost and the resources or, or whatever the case may be to individually label those with unique device identifiers in that box of 100? Or do you just treat it as a box of 100? You have to think about the upstream and downstream implications of that. And Exactly correct. And like you and I've talked about plenty of times before, and this is yet another great example, people should be careful what they wish for. Because if you want super prescriptive, you know, do this, don't do that, we'll do it, it this way, you know, we'll you're going to get it. You're going to get it. I don't often do this, John, but let me give you the exact advice to my customer in that situation and feel free to either agree with it or critique it. But basically what I said to them is I said, look, if you truly understand the principle what we're trying to accomplish here of traceability, then ideally each and every one of those thousand widgets in that box should be labeled individually because it's possible that you might have a problem with widget number 89 that does not have the same problem in widget number nine. So theoretically, if we can, it would be best to have that individual label on each of those thousand devices. But I also said pragmatically, we could probably get away with or justify not labeling them individually, just simply putting a label on the outside of the box, kind of like when you go to the grocery store, John, and I'm dating myself, but if you buy a box of Twinkies, for example, yeah. and you take one out of the box, it specifically says not labeled for individual sale because the label on the outside of the box will cover what's in the the box. I have no problem with doing that, John, with one caveat. And I think this is what you mentioned. We have to take a risk-based approach. Yeah. In other words, what is the risk and possible harms that could result from that risk of a problem with each of those devices? In other words, if the risk is minimal, 
I have no problem taking that for the lack of a better phrase, and that is labeling the outside of the box and not the inside of the box. Yeah, right. On the other hand, if the risk is potentially significant, I don't think the Twinkie approach is justified. And I would go, you know, a little bit further and look at ways that we can identify each and every one inside that box. Mm -hmm. And it's that regulatory logic, John, that I'm trying to emphasize here that I would stand behind. Because quite frankly, I don't care what the guidance says. If somebody comes in as a... As in the company that I just referenced a moment ago, they got pinged on a manufacturing inspection. I will present my logic to the inspector or to the FDA as long as the logic is sound. That, in my opinion, John, is what matters most. Mm -hmm. Am I naive, John? Did I just fall off the turnip truck yesterday? Or do you think that, gee, maybe this Drew's guy is a wackadoodle, but maybe there is a method to his madness? <laughs> I think there's a method for sure. When we first started talking about this and started describing UDI, you used an interesting word that I hadn't thought of really until we start talking about it. But instead of unique, you said universal device identification. So I read an article the other day about some work that Brazil is doing with UDI. I know there's been a lot of movement in the EU and I assume a lot of other regulatory bodies across the world. So is it possible, in your opinion, for the U to actually be universal? Or in other words, does UDI as defined by FDA mean the same thing as UDI as defined by Anvisa in Brazil? And, and EU competent authority? Yeah, great question, John. Or putting the question a slightly different way, can we have, will we ever have a universal or global location system? I certainly hope, but to be honest, I don't see it happening anytime soon. Yeah, I don't either. You know, we seem to be quibbling a lot about the format and the information, you know, between FDA and industry. I don't know. I hate to be cynical, but do these people, are they just simply trying to justify their own job descriptions? You know, this to me makes no sense. Back in the day, obviously you don't remember this, John, but in the early days of railroad, there was no standard gauge yeah. distance yeah. between yeah. the rails. So, you know, here in the United States, if you wanted to take a train, for example, from New York to LA, you might have to change trains a couple of times along the way. Why? Because literally, the gauge of the track would vary from place to place and you would have to get off one train and get onto another. Eventually, somebody came up with the idea, gee, maybe it might be a good idea to standardize this so we don't have it. You know? yeah. Electricity is the same way. You know, we don't have a standard electrical system. You know, when I used to travel a lot before COVID, especially internationally, I would have to carry around all of these different adapters. <laughs> yes. You know, global currency, we still don't have a global currency. Yeah. So are we going to have a truly universal standard for medical devices? I hope so. But like I said, I don't see it happening anytime soon. You know, it would certainly save us a lot of time and money if we did. Oh, for sure. I mean, I can remember numerous products where the item was exactly identical, but we had to have two different part numbers and multiple inventories depending on where in the world it was going to go. So there was, you know, an element of the part number that had some uniqueness to it, if you will, but it was based on where it was going to be sold. And it's just like, to your point earlier, I mean, or to use a, to, Walmart to figured use... this out, right? You know, yeah. for their inventory, they, you know, I'm sure other industries have as well. They sell products globally. This isn't something that hasn't been solved before. And to use a regulatory metaphor, John, do we have a global risk or classification system? No, we do Why not. Why not? I know. So how about before we wrap up, 
just a couple of other additional challenges yeah. as I see them to UDIs, because I say this with all due respect to my many friends in this industry who spend a lot of time, you know, struggling with these problems. I see what we're doing with this technology, truly the lowest of the low hanging fruit. And there's so much more that we can be doing with it. So for example, I hinted at a moment ago, what if you have an implantable device, a device that goes inside your body, yeah. you know, putting a barcode on it, maybe it might be useful up to the point of putting it into the patient. Yeah. But once it gets into that patient, that barcode is probably not going to do you much good. And if yeah. you're going in there to look at the device anyway, the patient probably has bigger problems to begin with. Yeah. So I love the idea, and I've been involved with several of these technologies already, John, using some sort of RFID or RFID-like chip, kind of like you've probably seen ads on the TV, John, for identification chips that you can put into dogs. You can even program them with the health records of the yeah. dog and they, yeah. they scan it and they get all that information. Yeah. We have that technology. There's no reason why we can't be using it. Another challenge, and we ran into this in the past, what about with reusable or reprocessable devices? The classic example that comes in mind, something that, you know, John, I had a lot of involvement with several years ago is the duodenoscope fiat. Right. That led to the deaths of a number of people here in California, as well as elsewhere, because of problems with reprocessing. Well, if you have some sort of a UDI label on your device and your device is intended to be reprocessed, your UDI label needs to be designed and tested to make sure that it can withstand whatever reprocessing procedure that you're going to be using. And how many reprocessing, you know, is it going to be reprocessed? times, a hundred times, a thousand times. In other words, and I've seen this happen before, John, what happens if you reprocess your device X number of times and your UDI label falls off or becomes unreadable? You've now defeated the entire purpose of having a unique right or universal, whatever you want to call it, device identify, right? Yeah. This was not spelled out in the guidance, but to me, this is common sense. This is something that if you truly understand product is supposed to be used, all of these things should be common sense. And then the last example that I would just share real quick, John, is in the area of combination products and specifically digital pills, right? I mentioned earlier, not to overuse this metaphor, but I want to be able to distinguish this Diet Coke can from that one. Well, imagine I didn't pull out any pills from my medicine cabinet, John, to illustrate, but if I have two pills out of the same bottle, I want to be able to distinguish the other, even though they're both labeled the same and they're both in the same bottle. One way that I can do that is by putting a little RFID chip inside of the pill. Now, some people might think, oh my gosh, that's going to be overkill for an application like that. Well, it is overkill for an application like that. But here, let me give you a legitimate example. This is a product that I was involved with a few years ago. You may remember or be familiar with a particular drug called Abilify, yeah. which is a psychiatrist medication. It's given to people that have schizophrenia and, and other kinds of mental disorders. Well, you can imagine patients that have these kind of mental disorders, compliance, you know, swallowing a pill every day or multiple times a day. It's not an easy thing to assure. So what we did, and this was the first time it was done back in 2014, we took a little RFID chip that, oh, by the way, we got a 510k on first. We put that now it turns into a combination product. We come up with a little sensor, originally like kind of a holter monitor that you can wear on your belt that would then transmit a signal to a cell phone such that when the patient swallowed the pill and it dissolved inside of them, that sent a signal and we could assure compliance and so on. So, and now that technology is starting to be used in other places. It's just a riff on the whole concept of yeah. a different application, but the concept itself is exactly the same.
Well, that last example that you shared is really interesting because compliance, and I'm not talking from a regulatory perspective, I'm talking about patient Patient taking their medications, is one of the bigger challenges, certainly in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, it's patients don't take their medications and they don't get better and that sort of thing. So, but you don't have any way to know whether or not they did take that. So it seems like in the grand scheme of things, a relatively simple yet, you know, creative approach to do that. And, you know, the cost of RFID, I mean, maybe you don't do it on aspirin, every single bottle or pill and a bottle of aspirin, maybe you do, I don't know, but the cost is not ridiculous in the grand scheme of things either. So cost benefit, just like risk benefit. You know, those are things that we have to take into account. So bottom line, John, and these are just a few examples. I mean, I could, you know, with more examples of challenges and technologies that are either addressed in the guidance very, very little, or in most cases, not in the guidance at all. But I can't emphasize this point enough, John, and this is not something just relative to our conversation today, but a lot of our conversations in the past, all regulation, including the guidance that we're talking about today, it's just the beginning. It's the starting point. It's recommendation. We're supposed to take that kind of like the preamble of the QMM on the FDA's website, and we're supposed to apply it, tailor it, personalize it, whatever you want to call it, to our particular situation. And so it should not be frustrating to people when they read guidance and they say it's not specific enough. It's supposed to be more general. Otherwise, as you said before, John, be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. (laughs) Any other final thoughts or takeaways or is that a good place to park this? Yeah, just to wrap this up, just to, you know, speaking of packaging and labeling and UDIs are just, you know, under the general umbrella of labeling in my book. So just to put a big wrapper and a big bow on top, you know, to send our audience off underway. Obviously, be aware of the UDI requirements. To get a question from the FDA, where's your UDI? And you look at them like a deer in the headlights. I mean, to me, I had this happen before, John. That's like somebody came to me with a device they were working on that was going to go inside somebody's body for the rest of their life, a permanent implant. And when I asked them about biocompatibility, they said, what's that? (laughs) If you don't know, you're laughing, John. This is exactly why we have so much regulation. But people need to know that this is something they're supposed to do and not just be familiar with the UDI requirements in general, but be able to apply them to their particular device, to their particular technology, like that not so hypothetical example that we talked about where you have one widget that's labeled individually and now you want to put it in a box with 999 of its closest friends. You know, how do you handle that situation? That's up to us. That's not up to FDA to tell us. That's up to us to figure out. And Um, hopefully everyone listening today is at least familiar enough with UDI to know that it's something that they need to address. Absolutely. Um, But at the risk, there's somebody that's like, what is that? This is a new topic. UDI, I think this is a general statement. I don't think it's an overgeneralization, but UDI is applicable to 100% of medical devices today. Definitely in the United States and pretty good chance outside the United States, you're going to have to address UDI for all medical devices, regardless of class. Kind of like usability, you know, up until about seven or eight years ago when the infusion pump fiasco occurred, usability was the exception rather than the rule. As a result of that, now it's the rule rather than the exception. I think, John, to your point, UDI is very similar. You know, UDI is the rule rather than the exception. Right. 
right. So, you know, so just be aware of those requirements, figure out how to apply them to your particular situation. Keep in mind that guidance is only guidance. It's not specific. It's written for a very broad audience. You as an individual in your company, you all need to figure out what you need to do, what makes sense for your particular device. Certainly take a look at what other people have done. If you're working on a 510k device, the natural thing to do is to take a look at the predicate or other similar devices and see how they handle some of these UDI challenges. But on the other hand, if you're working on a new device, like a de novo device or something like that, there might not be a direct predicate to look at. So you still have to take a look at the guidance. You have to understand the principles. You have to take a look at similar devices. But at the end of the day, John, you have to come up with a plan that makes sense for you. And then you have to be able to defend that plan when FDA comes knocking on your door and says, hey, you're not doing this. Why not? Or why are you doing this? And so yeah. on and so on. Yeah, That's the way I see this gameplay, John. How about you? You know, I'll be honest. When we first started talking today about EDI, I thought there was something there. But this has been thought provoking for me because on the surface, it does just feel like labeling, you know, and there is an element of that. And, and I certainly understand the pros and cons or certainly the ramifications of the traceability. But this is where, you know, the regulations are what they are, and this is not something that's optional at this day and age, nor do I think we want it to be optional. But I think this is a great example of there's a lot of ambiguity when you read the regulations and the guidances that are there. So use your noggin, think for yourself, apply what makes the most sense for your business and for that product when it comes to UDI. So that's my final thought. And a synonym for ambiguity, in my opinion, John, is opportunity. Exactly. Opportunity to interpret that in a number of different ways. And my exactly. very last thought to end this today, John, and then we can wrap this up. There's an expression, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. John Spear, <laughs> one of the best in this business. You know, if I'm going to steal, I'm going to steal from my friend, John Spear. <laughs> so here is my humble attempt at illustrating well, exactly that's pretty good. the same thing. I mean, <laughs> so. yeah, no, I know. That's a blast from the past. I appreciate you sharing and thanks for the insights on the topic of UDI. Ladies and gentlemen, Mike Drew's Vascular Sciences. Of course, we got into the weeds a little bit about the topic of UDI. There's lots of resources that are out there. Mike's got a lot of experience speaking of and helping you figure out how to navigate and manage all those nuances of UDI and frankly, all other regulatory matters that you might be faced with or exploring with your products and technology. So look him up, Mike Drew's Vascular Sciences. And on the quality side, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help you as well. Greenlight Guru is the only medical device success platform on the market today designed specifically and only for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. We have workflows to help you manage your design and development, your risk management activities, design our document records, quality events, things like campus complaints, and so on, all in a single platform, a single source of truth. So if you'd like to learn more, go to www.greenlight.guru and we'd be happy to have a conversation with your needs and requirements and see if we have products and solutions that can suit you. As always, thank you for continuing to keep the Global Medical Device Podcast as the number one podcast in the medical device industry. That's because you continue to tune in week after week after week to listen to the new episodes that we have and topics that we get to discuss with Mike Drews and other industry experts. So keep spreading the word to your friends and your colleagues. Keep us in that number one spot. So thank you so much. As always, this is your host and founder at Greenlight Guru John Spear and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.